if they want to eliminate, if they don't want to include our history, guess what? We know how to write. We know how to edit. We know how to do interior design. And we know how to market and promote. We'll promote Black history in our own way. What's good? I'm Nikisha Elise-Williams, and this is Black and Published. Bringing you the journeys of writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. Today's guest is Mark Curtis Little, author of the award-winning novel, The Bootlegger's Mistress. In our discussion, Mark explains why he says it would be a miracle for him to ever consider traditional publishing. But it would really take a lot of convincing for me to want to go through 80 to 100, to in some cases 150 rejections, uh, trying to get an, an agent to get to a traditional publisher and all of that. It would take a lot for me to give up the self-publishing route to go that route. Mark has followed many routes in his lifetime. At 70 years old, he's had successful careers in radio and PR. But this writing bug just won't let him go. The spiritual encounter he credits for igniting his writing career. Plus, the reason he's fixated on writing stories of the Great Migration. And why he says perseverance is the greatest thing about being Black. Mark digs in when Black and Published continues. When did you know that you were a writer? Oh, boy. <laughs> I, um, well, actually, I attempted to write a book um, when I was about 15. Uh, and it was a, the, the chronicle, the uh, basketball team that I was on. I was in the 10th grade. And the team was the number one team in the nation, high school basketball. And I did about maybe 15 pages. So that's when I thought that I really could be a writer. But after I left college and was in the radio business for 15 years. Um, I was one of those disc jockeys who was talking to my audience and, and, and talking to people over the air. And I be began to develop a rapport with people. And then I started writing some of the things that I did, just little notes. And when I went into business for myself uh, in public relations and advertising, I had to write the pieces of um, literature that honed my craft and I guess I got the bug right after my, my sister uh, wrote her really a, a great book in 1996 called Good Hair, it was on Simon and & Schuster. And I kind of said, if my little sister, who's seven years my, my junior, can write a book, I can too. And so after 15 years and seven books, uh, I think I've done a pretty good job. So you didn't gave me the whole rundown, but we got to go back. Yeah. Um, okay. You said you started writing tried to write a little a novel in high school but you had yeah. to, you, you hung it up so was it only that your little sister did it that make you made you go back to it or were you trying to actively write something the entire time when you were taking your notes from your life no i didn't um, i didn't i didn't attempt anything beyond what i did when i was around 15 years old uh in fact my sister really encouraged me to write because she said that she got some of her uh, encouragement from just watching me in my career. So uh, that kind of gave, that gave me a boost to say that I wanted to try writing. So then what was it that made you embark upon 
doing your first book? What was the story? What was the idea that led you to start writing that first novel? And let us know what the name of that first novel is. I was going through a very, in fact, what I call the darkest period of my life, um, somewhere right around uh, 2000. Um, uh, my life began to spiral uh, out of, I won't say out of control, but it, it, it began to spiral away from where it was, where it had been going for, for quite some time. And uh, it kept going that way and going that way and going that way. Um, I had uh, turned my, my life over to the Lord in 1995. But as I tell people, you get salvation, but surrender comes after salvation. And I got to the point, uh, ironically, on Dr. King's birthday, January 15th, 2007, and I was sitting at my computer and uh, I had been so mired in this, in this darkness. And I just said, just blurted out in my prayer to the Lord, I said, um, Lord, I want to do something that will show that I'm trying my best to get out of this abyss. And, and I want people to see it. And I, when I tell people this, they, you know, they chuckle and, and laugh and say, well, did you really hear God say, if, if I lift you up out of this, will you extol my greatness? And immediately, it, it, I mean, maybe within 10, 10 seconds of hearing that, I said to the Lord, I won't blink when you call. My first book was entitled Don't Blink When God Calls, and that began my career. Hmm. So in having that spiritual encounter with God that helped turn the course of your life, not only emotionally and spiritually, but also professionally. In writing, don't blink when God calls. How did you feel as you were writing the novel? Did you feel like it was spirit led or did you feel like you had to do the the hard work of writing a book? It was it was definitely spirit led. Um, if anybody reads that book, um, you'll 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 feel the pain. Um, and it was very, it was deeply personal. And of course, as you know, as a writer, you have to be very careful about getting too personal because you get lost in your personhood till you forget that you have an audience. However, people who were close to me read the book and said, once you get beyond this, this personal part of it, we think you're going to do pretty good. You need to keep at it. Cause I was just going to write that one book and forget about it. But <clears throat> What happened right after that, as I was completing this book, I began the sequel to the book, Angels in the Midst. And after that, I just really just took off. Actually, what happened after those first two books, um, I had to leave Jacksonville to go to, 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 to go to Newark, New Jersey, where I'm from, to take care of my dad. My mother had died 11 months before I had gone up there. And she didn't really tell me that daddy was going through dementia. I had no idea. And so when I got back to Jersey, which was very interesting, it was 40 years that I had been gone. I left in 1970 to go to college and I had not been back to live over that, that 40 year span. My friends who God bless them, many of them are still alive. They acted as if I had never left. Hmm. It was, it was, it was, it was the most enlightening thing to me. Like I had just been there, like we were sitting on the stoops talking the night before. And we, and we talked a lot about the, the Newark Rebellion of 1967, which all of us 
who grew up in Newark, it affected us in a mighty big way. And we talked about that a lot. And so I began to develop this idea about a book about some of the things that happened, although it's a, a novel, in one person's uh, uh, viewpoint of what happened as a result of that rebellion. And the book was entitled the book Magnificent Redemption. And what was the turning point for me in that book was that is where I met my, my current wife. She helped me with the book. And so we began to talk about this book and we, we put it together. I didn't have a professional editor or anything like that. Uh, but the book, when I finished the book, I looked at it and it wasn't as deeply personal as Don't Blink When God Calls in the sequel, Angels in the Midst. And that's when I became convinced that I could go beyond three novels. You mentioned um, your sister had traditionally published her book in the 90s, Good Hair, through Simon & Schuster, but that you had found an editor when you were doing your third book. And so all of your books are self-published, correct? Yes. So let's talk about that journey. Why did you decide to to self-publish in the first place when your sister had found success in the traditional realm? Well, my sister uh, had a, a very good journalism career, met a lot of people. She uh, went to Howard University. She, uh, once she got out of Howard, she was uh, blessed to be able to get a uh, job at the Plain Dealer in Cleveland. She worked there for a year. And my mother, who uh, is a story in and of herself, she, she wanted my, my sister to come back home so badly. So she went to the Star-Ledger, New Jersey. And she knew some people there and she said, you guys need to hire my daughter. She's a real good writer. Da, 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 da. Well, my sister got a job at the Star Ledger and uh, I believe she worked there for five years. And she did some magnificent work there. And her work caught the eye of Time, Inc. Uh, people Magazine hired her and she worked at People Magazine for about three years. And her star uh, uh, once again ascended to a job at Essence. And she became the senior editor of arts and entertainment for Essence Magazine. So as you can see, through all those stops, she met a lot of people in the literary world. And I never forget, she called me up in 1993 and said, I think I'm going to leave my job in a few years and I'm going to start writing professionally. So she had a different, a different turn in, as far as where I was going. My literature, my literary career, if, if you can call it that, really got started when I was, when I, when I had my own business. So I didn't have, and plus I was in Jacksonville, Florida. She was in New York, major market. And so she was right in the mix of so many things going on. And so she had the ability to move seamlessly to her career as a writer versus what I could do as a writer in Jacksonville, Florida. But with you being from Newark, did you ever consider moving back north so that you could oh, have that type of literary ascension? Absolutely. Um, I had I had one. I won't call it a drawback. I call it a benefit. Uh, I had been divorced from my my son's mother, and uh, and he and I were very close. And I had this thing that I did not want to leave my son in Jacksonville and become just a child support check to him and not a real dad. And now that I look at him at 40 years old, I say to myself, I've made the right decision. In making that decision and choosing the path that you have, how have you found 
the publishing industry, the self-publishing industry, and the literary world at large in response to your work? When I first started writing my book in 2007 and then getting it published in 2008, uh, the self-publishing world was nothing like it is today. It was, it, was a, it was a vast wasteland. You had the vanity publishing, which is, you know, as you know, is a, just a total ripoff. Um, so I had to teach myself a lot of things by reading a lot. Thank God for Writer's Digest and, and so many other publications that were out at the time. Even though they were, talk, they were, they were leaning more toward traditional publishing, I could read between the lines and see that there's a thread of connection that if I can take some of the best of what they do in traditional publishing and apply it to myself. And being an entrepreneur, you have to think like that. So I took my entrepreneurial skills and began to develop it through the self-publishing model that I was trying to create. And so at that point, I was able to begin to, to forge a path through self-publishing um, for myself. It wasn't easy. Um, I didn't have a lot of revenue, so I had to ask for favors and here and there. And so that's how I got, how I got started. Um, but then when I did my third book and I met my editor, the, the good, part, good thing about her, she wasn't just an editor. She worked mm. with Purpose Reviews for a long time, and she was very involved with Purpose on the sales and marketing side, but she was also a writer. So she brought to me something that could help me cross that bridge to knowing a little bit about the business to knowing knowing a lot about the business. And she and I would talk not just about my my book, but we also talked about the business in general. So I learned a lot from her. And so the stars began to align for me in this in this business uh, to the point that I it would take I won't say it would take a miracle, but it would really take a lot of convincing for me to want to go through. 80 to 100 to, in some cases, 150 rejections, uh, trying to get an, an agent to get to a traditional publisher and all of that, it would take a lot for me to give up the self-publishing route to go that route. So what would be like the three biggest things that you would tell an author about when, they, when they're trying to consider self-publishing versus traditional publishing? Because that's a very strong statement that it would take a lot for you to try to consider going the other route. And one of the reasons I wanted mm -hmm. to speak to you is because um, another fellow that we know who was our guest on the season of Black and Published, Rockman Johnson, said you also convinced him to self-publish when he had been approached by a publisher to go traditionally. Mm -hmm. First of all, in, that, in, in, in what you just said about Rockman, the thing that I, 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 I am really, how can I say, I'm, I'm dogged about is that I like to make sure that I keep control. Now, when I say that, that's not an ego-driven statement. That's that you want to know if you fill up your car with, with gas, right? You want to make sure that whatever destination you're going, you're going to the right destination to make sure that you don't run out of gas. When you're traditionally published, you if you're not a name, and if you don't have a lot of acclaim coming into the business, like a you know, a major personality or something. They take your work, you sign away your rights to the book and everything else, and then they take your manuscript and put it on the shelf. And then maybe five years later, you're saying, hey, when is my book going to get published? And believe me, that happens. You probably you probably heard those stories. Don't be so hasty trying to get with a traditional publisher. That'd be one. Um, 
I would, uh, that would, but that would probably be, I don't think there'd be three things. I think that would be the number one thing. And I think everything else would come after that because you lose control because you, um, you, you pretty much sold your passion for profit and you're not getting a lot of, a lot of things out of it. You know, people don't understand about advances, advances, it, it, the, the term advance, it doesn't mean they're buying your work. What they're doing, they're giving you an advance versus sales of your work. Mm-hmm. So once they get your work, say my, my sister signed for a huge advance based on three books. However, her first book flew off the shelves and I think it was in seven printings. It went, did great. But her other two failed miserably. The advance was based on three books. So what she didn't do with the la- with the the, the, two, the final two books on the advance, she lost money because the, the company is not going to lose money. People think you can get advance to go spend the money. No, you can't because you spend the money and you don't and you don't come to the you don't fulfill the the dictates with the contract with, that you got with, for which you got the advance. You got to give that money back, and they don't get that. And so, I, and, and of course, that's getting into the weeds. That's getting into a lot of legalese, but that's what I try to tell them. You lose a lot of control. That's why I told Rockman, I said, yeah, you probably got some publisher to talk to you, but you're not special. And I, I had to really break his ego down. I said, just because you found a publisher, let me tell you something. There are a lot of stories out there of people who thought they found a publisher and found out that they gave away what they could have done a lot better um, if they had gone alone and done it. Now, also in, in, this, in this conversation, I have to be very honest, a lot of people don't want to, to, um, to put those kinds of resources into something like that. It's, it's, it's all about how much you want to sacrifice to get your career to where you want it to go. And if you want to be, if you want to, if you want to self-publish or independently publish, you're going to have to say there's some things I'm not going to be able to do to get to the point where to get to where I want to be. That's really the the nuts and bolts of it. And, and that's what I told Rockman. And what are those things that you aren't able to do as a self-published author? Oh, well, you maybe can't take vacation. You, you can't <laughs> eat a good restaurant. You know, I mean, you can't buy the, the, the new car every three years. I mean, those are the kinds of sacrifices you have to make if you're going to do them. But that's that's life in general. So um, there's a lot of sacrifices. And and if my wife was on this on this call, I don't she she would she wouldn't talk about it because she she said, you go for it and we'll make it happen. And God bless her. Then the, the 10 years, nearly 10 years we've been married. She has so been so true. To that statement. Anytime that I really need to get something, she said, look, you do this, we'll make it. Go ahead and get it done. You, everybody doesn't have that kind of relationship with a spouse or a significant other. All right. And so you've been on this journey and making these sacrifices since 2007. So 15 years, you're seven novels in, and your latest novel is The Bootlegger's Mistress. Where did this story come from? Oh, boy. Now you're getting down to the nitty gritty. The Bootlegger's Mistress was um, my attempt to come to grips with some of the things that 
as uh, a young, uh, a child growing up in the 50s and the 60s had questions about, but the, the answers were, were never revealed. Um, I don't know how old you are, I'm 70. Uh, my mother was a, traveled on the, on the Great Migration from Georgia in, in 1937. Her family, her mother took her, her and her 10 siblings uh, to New Jersey. And um, I used to have questions about things, stuff that I would hear them talking about when they didn't know I was around. And I'd ask questions. And the first thing my mother would say, look, that be uh, she she wouldn't say be quiet. She said said some other words. And in so many words, <laughs> stay out of grown folks business. <laughs> and it really intrigued me because I was always an inquisitive kid. I'm the oldest. So that that shows some things. And I would always ask questions. And I didn't. I said, why did this happen? How did you get there? What, you don't need to know that. So as the years went by and I got busy in career and family and everything, I kind of that that kind of subsided. But it wasn't until once again, I'll go back to my dark, those, that dark season of my life. My mother, um, little that I know, um, only had about nine years left. This was in the year 2000 when this, 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 when it really got into the throes of this darkness. She and I became very close. Um, we talked believe it or not, every day, some days for maybe five minutes, other days we talked for maybe two hours. And we shared so many things and she began to tell me things that I'd asked about many, 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 many years ago. And I always would say to her, Ma, why didn't you tell me this 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Oh, I just didn't think it was important. And I didn't really understand how much it meant to you. And so she almost said the word sorry. And I said, no, stop. Don't say you're sorry because you don't have to apologize for that. You had your reasons and I respect those reasons. I will share this with you. She, when uh, I never was able to go down south um, to see either my, my relatives on my father's side or my mother's side. And of course, you know, for, I guess you would say for good reason. You're talking about the 50s and the 60s. But there was one incident, and, I, and when, I, when I get there, I, you may know where I'm going with this. Uh, I was just dogged about wanting to go see my, my cousins who I'd heard about, had never met uh, down in South Carolina. Uh, my, my Georgia, the whole Georgia thing was, was kind of mysterious, but my father's family was intact in a place called Anderson, South Carolina. And she would go to the Jet Magazine with the cover of know where you're going yep you know you know where i'm going yep and of course at that point i'm five six seven eight years old and that frightened me right mm-hmm. and my mother said and that's all she she, she said i don't want this to happen to you mm. and of course we know why why mamie till did it is because she said i want the world to see what, they, what did they did to my to boy my son, yeah. I, I, my son I, I you know right but of course as an eight nine year old you don't understand that stuff but as a 50 plus year old, I did. So I began to think about, and of course I hadn't started my writing career, but, I, but, but as I was moving into it, I began to recall those conversations. Unfortunately, my mother was taken back home in 2009. So I didn't have her to be able to bounce some things off of. So it all was about the spirit that the Lord put into me about this book. I mean, all of almost all of the instances where I talked about 
historical when I have historical references, those were correct. Some of the things that happened in Newark during the time. I talked about some things that happened in Orangeburg, South Carolina. Of course, you know, um, Emmett Till. But of course, I intertwined some other stories, as any novelist would do. But one of the things that I wanted, that I try to do whenever I write a novel, if I'm going to use a, a historical perspective, I wanted to make it right. I don't want anybody to read it so oh, that didn't happen like that or that wasn't it, because then it kind of taints the, the contents of your book. All yeah. right, let's yeah. get to the reading. Let's ask you okay. some more questions. Hey, Black and Published family, it's time for the reading. The Bootlegger's Mistress by Mark Curtis Little is a historical fiction novel that spans the life of Carrie Lacey from a small town in South Carolina to her transformation as journalist and civil rights activist Dicey Kaufman, a life that includes rape, allegations of murder, and the legal fight to clear her name and her father's legacy once and for all. Here's Mark. In this particular point, this is uh, where Carrie Lacey, who of course became Dicey Kaufman uh, through a series of events in the book, this is when Dicey was um, well into her career as a, as a media person, and she had a podcast, and her podcast uh, was called 60 Minutes with Dicey Kaufman. And she had seen a, a, a show on PBS about black farmers who lost millions of acres of farmland during the 20th century. And of course, she could relate to that. She knew about that because of what, her, what she saw with the attempts to steal her father's land, well, her family's land uh, during the time that she was in Anderson, South Carolina. And this was a this was a monologue that she talked about um, about seeing this show, and she talked about she had so many callers about the subject of black, black farmers having their, their land taken uh, during the 20th century, and she was talking to herself and she said that particular show stirred my soul like none of the others. There were callers who had firsthand knowledge of the, the of the atrocities. While they were initially mortified about the misdeeds, they became incensed after seeing stores and other types of businesses owned by Blacks closed for reasons such as claims of non-payment of taxes or having criminal activity such as gambling and prostitution solicited on the premises, many of which were not true. As I expected, there was a lot of denial that any of that happened. Instead, I was stirring up trouble by telling the truth. I realized I saw this documentary during the age of Obama, a time when American society was increasingly fraught with interposition and obstruction. At that point, a figurative light bulb went on in my head and questions flooded. In Frederick Douglass's 1852 speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? Was the premise based on ignorance of fair treatment for people who suffered under America's original sin? the peculiar institution called slavery. What about the ambivalence of both supporters of Southern slavery and those who wanted, uh, wanted it abolished? They stood on opposite sides of that heinous system, yet when it came to the question of separate but equal, especially as it applied to interstate transportation during the 19th century and much of the following 100 years, they seemed to be joined at the hip in having Blacks sit in separate but unequal train cabins. What about redlining in Northern neighborhoods and illegal maneuver which prevented blacks from moving into predominantly white communities? There was some of that going on in Newark, I know for sure. 
The word reparation began to germinate in my brain, joining the debate that's being waged in political corridors, in classrooms, in churches, and even on street corners. The people whose meager understanding of reparations is limited to what happened during 240 years of legal slavery. There is a convenient misunderstanding of the Jim Crow era, which occurred for a century after the Civil War and was perhaps more devastating to Blacks who allegedly were free. Going back to South Carolina stoked the fire in my soul that I thought was extinguished a long time ago. Wow, was I wrong. All right. So for those who aren't familiar, and just to give them a little background about what the story and the characters, I'll start with Dicey, because she reminded me of famed Black women journalists from Ida B. Wells to Isabel Wilkerson and Nicole Hannah-Jones. How did Mm -hmm. those historical and contemporary figures work themselves into the crafting of her character for you? Well, um, because uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones and Isabel Wilkerson are mainly, you know, they're, 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 they're today. And so I, you know, I've read, I've read their works. Um, but because I'm older, I've seen this road before. And I'm not saying that it's not worth walking again. I'm I, I, I absolutely not. Please don't, don't, don't think I am. But I want to offer the, as the road is being walked, I want to offer or, or ask that People like Isabel, people like Nicole and others at least ask some of the the older generation to help them walk that path. And in some cases, it is appreciated. In other cases, it's not. And I'm not knocking either, either notion. So that's where I go. I go back maybe with, um, with Mary Church Terrell or uh, Ida Wells Barnett. And people of that of that ilk, people, uh, um, uh, Charlene under golf. If you notice, the bootlegger's mistress tried to touch all of that. So I tried to tried to straddle that line to make sure that people knew I wasn't going to keep my foot, my feet stuck in the past. That I wanted to bring some contemporary uh, 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 movement in this book. So, in 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 touching the past and remembering those forebears who came before contemporary journalists like Isabella Nicole, who I've mentioned, um, you drop a lot, a lot of names in this book of, of Black leaders, some who are very well known and some not as well known. Why was that important for you to mm-hmm. do? Because there, because I knew that they were going to be because of, of my age and people who, who, are, who know me and, and are, have been part of my platform since I began writing, I want them to to feel comfortable when they read this book that they don't get that they don't get lost in what's going on today. Um, I, wanted, I was writing, I was completing this book during the 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 protest over George Floyd and and and, uh, and the other and the police killings and everything and the Black Lives Movement and I did, Black Lives Matter movement. I'm sorry, and I didn't want to get lost. I didn't want this book to get lost in that in that conversation, especially for people who know about this, about these things. And they, and I want them to see some familiar names that they grew up with, that they studied. Alain Locke, people don't know that Alain Locke's uh, work during the, during the Harlem Renaissance, because he, you know, he's not a Richard Wright, he's not Langston Hughes. So 
when you see Alain Locke, unless you really do your, your homework, you don't know who he is. Um, so that's why I had to drop those names in there to make sure there was a connection of the Great Migration to what is going on today. Think about the Great Migration and in terms of the people who left the South or their families left the South and went northward and what the, the generation, the, the, the generation or two that came out of that, that migration and the contributions, and not just because they left the South because of the, 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 the ill treatment, the, the, the lynchings, the, uh, the burning of, of, of whole city, whole towns, whole communities, but also some of the people who left wanted to, to, to ingrain themselves in areas that they were told they couldn't do it. Take this as John Coltrane. John Coltrane is one of the greatest musicians ever. We're not talking about greatest black or African-American musician, one of the great, greatest musicians. He could not have done that if he had stayed in the South. He would just been somebody who played at the, 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 the honky, not the honky tonks, but the, but the, um, you know, the, 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 sawdust, the sawdust floor places and all that, you know? But mm-hmm. he was able to come up to New York and he was able to play his, to play his saxophone and people would come and see him and say, man, that dude can play. And they didn't think about the great white saxophonists. They talked talked about John Coltrane. And as far as they, they were concerned, his music had no color. A lot of things that happened during the, the great migration, people and who people who, who individually left or whose families left, they made an indelible contribution to America. So it's just not the great migration. It's America's great migration. And I know that read the paper this morning, of course, the legislature is going into session. And one of the big things, they want to change the whole history. They want to make the history books patriotic. Well, guess what? You, you still can't get away from black people if you talk about patriots. All right. Yeah. I, don't know, I know I'm covering a whole lot of stuff here. So, you know, bear with me on this. Now nah, you're good. But my dad, but my dad served uh, on the USS Franklin in World War II. The ship was bombed 50 miles out outside of Japan. They were on a mission. Daddy, two hours later before they were bombed, was working in the galley and in some cases was being called the N-word for them getting their food on time. But yet when the ship was bombed and some of those same people, some of those same seamen who were calling him the N-word were screaming to him for help when they were injured, wounded, um, uh, burning. My my father said, said, you never want to ever smell burning flesh. He saved five men. And each time I would go to one of his ship reunions over the years, my father, you would think my father was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Because these men recognized him as one of the guys who saved them. Of course, they didn't talk about it probably in their own little little corners. But when they saw him, it made them feel good. And the fact that, that I was there, they said, your father's a hero. He didn't get his medals until 1992. That happened in 1945. Now, is he a patriot? Should he be in the history books? And I'm just using him as an example. There are hundreds, maybe thousands of of black men and women who served our country, who should be in the history books. But yet, if you hear some of the other people talk about it, there's no room in history books for people like him. So my book, 
I touched upon those things because I would like to see him right now. There's a move right now. One of my very, very good friends um, uh, want, is pushing the Newark school system to make my book required reading in the Newark school system. That's going on right now. That's what I want my book to be. And I want and I would like to, to, to say to others who are writing books, if they, they, and I say they, you know who they is. <laughs> they are. If they want to, if they want to eliminate, if they don't want to include our history, guess what? We know how to write. We know how to edit. We know how to do interior design. And we know how to market and promote. We'll promote Black history in our own way. I know exactly who and what you're talking about uh, for the Black and published audience. We live in Florida. Uh, and our governor, who's probably going to run for president, has a law trying to ban critical race theory like many other Republican governors across the country, but we won't get into politics here, but that's what that rant kind of <laughs> came from, um, from Mr. <laughs> Little. But back to the bootlegger's mistress. Um, what is it about historical fiction that makes you want to dive into that history and, and tell these stories and put your own spin on them and, and, and put these narratives into the world? I think it's basically because of... of um... Uh, the resistance of my 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 parents and 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 my aunts and uncles to 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 reveal the story. And when I say the resistance, I'm not saying that they did it willingly. There were so many stories that came out of the South. There was I knew a family who changed their name after they left the South because they had a, a the oldest child had killed somebody and they had to get him out of the, out of the South, and they changed his name. So they could go with that same name because if, if you know, of course, murder, there's no um, no statute of, limit, statute of limitations on murder. So they could come, the, the law enforcement could come 30, 40 years later and claim that one of the other brothers was, was, was the murderer. So there was a lot of pain that came out of telling those stories. And so, I, and like I said, I became more sophisticated as I, as I grew older, which I should have, um, that when I was a kid being insistent that I wanted to go down South to a 50 plus year old, realizing that some of these stories were painful. And my mother even admitted to me, she said, some of the stuff I just couldn't tell you because it hurt me to tell the story. So I get it. This is my contribution to saying, okay, I think I'm a pretty good storyteller. I think that I can take some of these stories without revealing the source, the sources or the real people and making making these stories some some good reading, and some reading that may foster some other novelists to say, you know what, I'm going to follow that road. I'll I'll do it a little differently, but I'll follow that road. That's what I'm trying to do. Is that I want to share the stories that I that I've heard that I know about, um, and put them in, in in like you said in a in a in a novel form, so people can enjoy it wax eloquently about it, um, discuss it with perhaps their younger, your people who are 40 and younger. All right. And so uh, wrapping up our talk about the book specifically, you mentioned that this book is, there's an advocate working to get this book to be taught in the Newark school system and writing the historical fiction and illuminating the light on all the historical leaders that you mentioned in the novel. What do you want Black people specifically to take away when they read this narrative? Um, I want them to know that there's, there's no shame in our history. There's no shame in, 
and and that we also need to broaden our scope beyond the obvious, beyond Congressman John Lewis, beyond uh, the, the the great humanitarian Mark, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., beyond the present heroes, Maxine Waters in politics. We need to broaden how we look at our history because our history is rich and it, and all the names that there I'm, I'm 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 extremely grateful and thankful to god that we have all these great names but there are a lot of other names out there and so that's what i want people to do is that i want them to broaden their horizons rather than narrow it down because it's, it's like a tsunami coming at them and when you take my book and other books that talk about those people who are hidden figures in our history and and expose them to our to our people and then they expose them to their cliques and when they go to the Yales and the Harvards and the Princetons and and the University of Chicago wherever and they say I, I just knew about Dr. King. Well let me tell you about 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 Howard Thurman, the man who Dr. King studied about what he was doing. Oh Howard Thurman, who's that? You see them you follow me? So that's what yeah. I want this book to be. All right. I want to transition into a little speed round and then we'll wrap up. So okay. what, what is your favorite book? Oh, boy. My favorite nonfiction book is Adam by Adam Clayton Powell. I'm a, I love politics and I love that book, Adam Clayton Powell. Big book, about 900 pages. I think Native Son would probably be my favorite novel. The reason I, I, I dropped Native Son so quickly is because when I read Native Son the 10th grade in high school, my, my English teacher would not accept it as a book report. Hmm. That's so interesting to me that your teacher would accept your, your fiction book report on Native Son. And you're twice my age. Hmm. I'm, I'm 35. But when I was in high school in, in 10th grade, <laughs> we read Native Son in my 10th grade American literature class. That's, yeah. that's, that's crazy. Uh, who is your favorite author? Well, me, of course. <laughs> I love it. Oh, oh boy. I think maybe you know, Zora Neale Hurston, um, I like her, and it's not so much uh, about what she has written, but her journey uh to in writing because of uh all the the uh obstacles that she had to to, to overcome and not just for white for white people from Black Many from black people yeah. because you know you know about her story in the Harlem Renaissance. They mm-hmm. didn't you know they didn't want that country girl. And yeah. Richard Wright was Richard Wright was just downright nasty about their eyes of watching God. He just said that what did he say something about the the uh, dialect was a a, a a white minstrel or something? He said that was just just nasty. But mm-hmm. they didn't like her. Yeah, so I think because of her story, her the backstory on her about her, I think that would make her make her one of my one of my favorite authors. Who is your favorite black American hero? Dr. King. Because of the enormity of his mission, both visible and invisible, yeah. you know, uh gravitates me toward him. What is your favorite time period in history to write about? From nineteen fifteen to nineteen seventy, Great Migration. <laughs> I think I think more things came out of the Great Migration that we could ever document. And I know in the, the years that I have left, I won't be able to do it, but I'll be doggone if I'm not going to try. Um, mm-hmm. Name one hidden figure you think everyone should know. 
<laughs> oh boy. Um, Bob Johnson, BET. Oh yeah. Bob Johnson is one. John Johnson, uh, Ebony Ebony Publishing Company. Huh? You know the, the 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 vehicle that got us to a place where we need to be. Robert Abbott, who was the publisher of the Chicago Defender. The Chicago Defender was the beacon of light for the Great Migration. Okay. Yes. So Robert Abbott is is one of them. Um, oh boy, there's a lot of hidden figures out there. My mother's a hidden figure. She was a she was a bulwark in um in Newark, New Jersey, as far as uh, as right. She was a she was a PTA president at our, at our school, but she was a fighter for children. Okay. Yes. And there are a lot of people like that in in places in 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 Chicago, in Detroit, L.A. that you don't hear about. So those are the hidden figures. So for me to give you one hidden figure would be would not be fair to all those the majority of those hidden figures in, in small hamlets all over the country. Okay. Uh what's the greatest thing about being black? Perseverance. Hmm. That's the only word I can think of. Perseverance. All right. So my final question is when you are dead and gone, what would you like someone to write about you and the legacy of words and work that you left behind? He tried to teach. Thank you, Mark. Big thank you to Mark Curtis Little for being here on Black and Published today. Make sure you check out Mark's latest novel, The Bootlegger's Mistress, out now everywhere books are sold. And if you're not following Mark, follow him on the socials. He's at Mark Curtis Mark on Twitter and at Mark Curtis Little on Instagram. And Mark is M A R C. That's our show for the week. If you like this episode and want more Black and Published, head to our Instagram page. It's at Black and Published, and that's B-L-K and Published. There, I've posted a bonus clip from my interview with Mark about why he wanted to touch so many cross-sections of history in his novel, From Prohibition to Reparations. Make sure you check it out, and let me know what you think in the comments. I'll holler at y'all next week when our guest will be Kristen R. Lee, author of the YA novel, Required Reading for the Disenfranchised Freshman. Until then, peace.